Welcome to another special installment of The Dispatches, powered by Righteous Media. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The inauguration of Joe Biden is here, finally. And the eyes of the world are on Washington, D.C. And the lungs of the world are holding their breath. After the January 6th terrorist attack at the Capitol, America is on edge. Our country's gotten a wake-up call, a painful, terrible, violent wake-up call. Domestic terrorists had their 9-11 moment, a spectacular display that revealed our weaknesses, scared America deeply to its core, and changed everything. This is our new normal now. What we face is a new American insurgency. It's out in the open and likely growing. We are now truly a country at war, here at home. America is at war with domestic terrorists. We're also still at war with the coronavirus, as 400,000 Americans have now died. We're also still at war with a racist legacy, and we are still at war with a soon-to-be former president that has again been impeached, is more volatile than ever, is still extremely popular, and is still clearly a threat to our national security, the fabric of our country, and our future. In 2021, America is at war with ourselves, and I'm going to continue to bring you dispatches like this to help you break it down. If you're new here, The Dispatches is a quick-hit series of breaking news podcasts hosted by me, that gives you information and analysis you need to protect yourself and the people around you and stay ahead of the curve. It's always going to be grounded in my background in national security, politics, and defense issues. And it's going to continue to bring the five eyes that define everything we do at Righteous Media. Integrity, information, inspiration, impact, and independence. Just like we do at Angry Americans. And this pre-inauguration special dispatch features an urgent conversation with a leader who is covering maybe the most important story in America, our national military response to the domestic threat. As you hear my voice, 25,000 National Guard troops envelop all of Washington. And the Washington Post has breaking news. Twelve members of the National Guard have been removed from inauguration duty in security screening. The FBI and DOD have been screening everybody. And of the 12 National Guard troops, it includes two with possible sympathies for anti-government groups. This is breaking news that continues to unfold. And it's happening the same day that General Lloyd Austin, Joe Biden's nominee for Secretary of Defense, faced confirmation hearings in the Senate. This is happening the same day that a U.S. Army soldier was arrested for trying to assist ISIS by plotting to kill fellow soldiers in the Middle East and provide advice on potential terrorist targets in New York, including the 9-11 Memorial. Cole James Bridges, 20, 
was charged by the Justice Department with trying to provide material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization and attempting to murder military members. So there are enemies among us. There are enemies in uniform. There are enemies abating and abetting enemies foreign and domestic. And that domestic threat is rising as we recognize a historic inauguration in Washington. And Dan Lamoth is here to break it down for us. Dan joined the Washington Post in 2014 and covers the United States military and the Pentagon. He's written extensively about the armed forces for more than a decade. He's traveled overseas, he's been embedded, and he's covered combat units in Afghanistan numerous times. He's one of the best there is. Dan's a guy you can trust and whose voice you must listen to now. He has experience, and he has integrity. Now, President Mayhem calls reporters like Dan enemies of the people. I consider reporters like Dan defenders of our democracy, guardians of the people. And he's going to take us deeper into an urgent side of inauguration that will probably only get a brief mention on most cable news networks. How safe is inauguration? How the hell can the FBI and Department of Defense screen 25,000 National Guard troops for extremism in one week? And if Washington, D.C. is secure, what might domestic terrorists hit this week instead? This is the important stuff. This is the game-changing stuff. This is the stuff you need to know. As an Army infantry and military police veteran, I've fought an insurgency in Iraq. I've guarded against violent mobs and terror attacks and I've set up checkpoints in New York City after 9-11. And this is not the time to give political and especially military leaders a pass. It's a time to stay especially vigilant. Most of the American media is looking on the surface and looking back. Again, in this episode of The Dispatches, we're going deeper and we're looking forward. The war is on, and America is the battlefield. And this week, inauguration will be an inflection point. But we're all in this together, and we will make it through if we stay informed, if we stay connected, and if we stay vigilant. This is your update. This is The Dispatches. And now, our conversation with Dan Lamont. Ladies and gentlemen, concerned, focused, vigilant Americans around the country and around the world, welcome to another installment of The Dispatches. All eyes of the world are on Washington. Uh, everybody is anxiously awaiting the uh, swearing in of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and there's a lot of focus on national security and the security apparatus that has now been installed upon basically the entire city. Uh, given our national security focus, I want to go deeper, and I want to take you behind the scenes and below the headlines with uh, a guy who I think is, is one of the best reporters in the country on this beat or any other beat. Uh, he is the national security and Pentagon reporter for The Washington Post. He's been embedded in Afghanistan. He's been at The Washington Post for, I think, about 10 years, uh, and he's a must-follow on Twitter. You should read everything he writes, a guy I've been honored to be in touch with and, and know, and a guy who I think represents all the best of what American journalism is all about. Uh, the great and powerful Dan Lamoth joins us. How are you, sir? Welcome. Hey, Paul. Thank you. So, um, 
you're in DC, man. And you just posted, uh, we're recording this, uh, Tuesday night. Uh, tomorrow is inauguration. Um, you just posted a, a really important story that the national guard have, uh, basically put on ice at least 12 members of the national guard. We're all concerned about the extremist threat. We're all concerned about anti-government sediment within the military, especially frankly, those of us who've been in the military and been in the national guard, I posted today, you know, the National Guard couldn't find out who in my unit owed child support. I'm not incredibly confident that they're going to be able to vet 25,000 uh, troops for extremism. But break it down for us. What is your reporting uh, today and this week? Tell us that, that we need to know. Yeah, th thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I think the biggest question I have right now is what do they know and what do they not know? Uh, what we do know so far today, at least in terms of what's been disclosed, uh, is that 12, 12 National Guard members have been pulled out of uh, formation, pulled off the line uh, with the, this fence that's been constructed around uh, the Capitol and other federal buildings. Um, we know that two of those um, appear to have some sort of anti-government sentiment that they've expressed. Uh, General Hokinson, the uh, chief of the National Guard Bureau, uh, at one point referred to it as texts, at the other point referred to it as sort of online. I suspect it was on social media. Um, we don't know exactly what they said. That We asked that repeatedly, you know, kind of as a press corps. Uh, so assuming it was something enough to at least trigger a, a, a red light there. Uh, the other 10 uh, are names that the FBI sent back to uh, the military and said, you know, we have concerns about these individuals. Those 10 were supposedly not necessarily for extremist uh, sentiment. So we don't really know what may have popped that, whether it's uh, you know some sort of investigation, something they did, something they said, something in their history that somehow allowed them to be in the guard, but wouldn't allow them. I, I'm not even sure, uh, but a, a dozen people. Now, granted, a dozen people out of 25,000 uh, brings you to you know well less than one percent, uh, and I and I do think we need to acknowledge that. Uh, the flip side of, of of the coin is. You know, we don't know how many others there may be that just kind of skated under the radar here and for what. Right. And it only takes one, right? It only takes one guy with a with a loaded mag to do some serious damage and do, you know, what I think is our greatest fear, at least in Washington, which is an insider attack of some kind. Can you can you take us deeper? Uh, you, you mentioned in the article how uh, one of these guys was flagged having to do with a truck parked outside of the armory. Can you can you explain that a little bit and how that went down? Yeah. So, so uh, the tip was put in uh, and I think it was raised in a couple different places. Uh, but th there was an individual who lives in the neighborhood of the armory in Southeast DC. Uh, he was walking by, I think probably partly curious, probably partly concerned, uh, and kind of just taking a look at some of the vehicles through the fence line visible from, uh, the street where any civilian could stand. Uh, and there were a bunch of three percenter stickers on a, uh, you know, a pickup truck in the lot. Uh, so turned it in, uh, to DC council. A uh, member of the D.C. City Council flagged that to the National Guard. Uh, we're not sure if that's one of the two individuals that they did have concerns about or, or if that's some case yet to be determined. Um, but, but it's certainly one that, that, that caught their attention. Uh, and I think it kind of goes to show that for all the talking about everything that's gone on since the insurrection on the 6th, 
uh, you still got National Guard members rolling up to their uh, assignments with three percenter stickers all over their truck. And there's just a disconnect there in, in terms of what they think is okay and what is. And we talked about this with Jason Dempsey. You know, I've been of the opinion that the military hasn't been aggressive enough in vetting out extremists and anti-government folks. I mean, I don't, I don't know how they can do this. I mean, so, you know, I was in a National Guard unit. I knew guys who were pretty extreme in their views that that's likely only amplified. Anybody who's been in the National Guard and has a Facebook page knows a guy or a gal like that. That's the no shit, right? You know, the military is is not a monolith. We're a reflection of the population. And, you know, if one in 300 have sympathies, that's a national security concern. So can you take us deeper on this, Dan? Do they have 25,000 FBI agents combing through 25,000 troops? I mean, how do they, uh, are they going through everybody's Facebook page? How do they, how do they vet 25,000 troops in, you know, a week, basically? No, I, I think that's a very real con concern. And, and I think we've had very limited understanding and, and knowledge that they're willing to share, not, not only on the military side, but, but also the FBI side. Um, we're, aware that names were handed over to the FBI uh, and names were were run. Uh, now, I'm, I'm assuming they're probably squaring that against existing databases and things like that that they have handy. Uh, that's not necessarily a deep dive on every individual Facebook page and, and things of that sort. So I, I think they've, they've probably found some low-hanging fruit. I don't know that they have everyone. Mm. And it's, you know, like always going to probably come down to good order and discipline in the military. If there's somebody who's a threat, it's going to be, you know, somebody else in their unit who flags it. The question is, can they action against that quickly enough? It, it kind of reminds me in some ways of, of the difficulty the military has had around sexual assault or sexual harassment. I mean, sometimes people take it more seriously than, than others. It comes down to often leadership at the chain of command at the unit level. So has there been any additional training? You cover this beat, man. Like if you're a National Guardman, Guardsman from Texas or from Virginia, you got a call a week ago that you're going to D.C., uh, they haven't been trained in how to do insurrection response, right? Many of them have been doing hurricanes and wildfires and we're in Iraq and Afghanistan, but this is very different, being deployed against a different kind of threat. So has there been any additional training for these guys and gals that are now hitting the ground in D.C.? I mean, a, a lot of the initial training that, that, that we're hearing about is sort of the see something, say something idea. Uh, you know, and certainly there, there's some value in, in reinforcing that on, on a, on a mission like this, um, you know, kind of just walking around the perimeter myself the other day, uh, I was in DC over the weekend. Um, you know, it's, it's a whole lot of guardsmen, a seemingly un overwhelming, uh, military response for a lot of standing around at least ahead of time, you know, and, and, you know, there, there's probably some, some value in just seeming so overwhelming that, you know, maybe that short circuit, some attempts that might happen in the first place. Uh, the guardsmen are standing mostly at a chain link fence. Uh, there's a red zone and then a green zone outside the red zone. Red zone, I don't think you're seeing virtually anybody that is not like highly vetted, uh, you know, has a specific government reason to be inside. The green zone outside, you do see civilians, you do see, um, you know, kind of locals walking around. Uh, that's where some of the photographs have popped up of people handing over cookies and things of that sort. Like they're they're kind of going up to that outer fence line, which is a few blocks from the Capitol. Uh, I was out near the Library of Congress on the eastern side um, of this sort of fortified area. And 
you know, the, the conversations are pretty casual. I mean, you know, I was watching families talk to the guardsmen and sort of, you know, chit chat, um, you know, and, and they're 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And, you know, we've seen the photographs and, and you know, some of the images inside the Capitol of people on cops and before that on the ground, uh, before that became a thing. Um, I think the, the thing we need to look at looking forward, one of them is, you know, if the worst Night, worst case nightmare would have happened. And, and there's one individual, say, in this group of 25,000 who doesn't want to do the right thing or, or has some sort of extremist sentiment that he's been hiding. I think even then, there are numerous layers beyond that. The Guard is forming sort of an unprecedented outer layer of security. Inside of that, there's still police. There's still Secret Service. It's, you know, it's a layered defense with a very new fortified layer that didn't exist like this in previous generations. Dan, you've covered this stuff for a long time. Um, do you have a sense of what the response is like outside of DC? Cause we know insurgencies, right? They may take a pass on, on the hardest target in DC and they may go to state houses. They may go down to a local DMV, but did you get a sense from, from, from Pentagon leadership and national guard leadership, how prepared they are for other places beyond DC that are also high value targets? Uh, yeah, I did a lot of uh, reporting in the tail end of last week, uh, talking to you know, states, governors, things of that sort, trying to get a, a sense for what their concern was. Uh, and, and one, one data point that they were worried about was over the weekend, the 17th, uh, and then R Richmond also had some, uh, some rallies yesterday. Uh, so each governor can handle that as they wish. They activate at, the, at their own behest. Um, many states did, uh, and many states that had problems over the summer, be it Boogaloo sort of things. Um, you know, we saw you know, Lansing, Michigan, Richmond, Virginia, uh, Oregon, some of the places that had problems already in the last calendar year were, were pretty proactive in, in activating. Some of them activated in sort of a standby status just to make sure they had a cavalry if they needed it. Uh, some of them actually put guardsmen on the streets proactively, just mm. put them there, you know, and if any, you know, I think, again, kind of show a force, you know, deterrent factor, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think we're going to see the same sort of things for a while and particularly on inauguration day, yeah. um, the, the concern becomes at what point do you go back to normal? Uh, what point can you go back to normal? And then once you do, you know, those softer targets as they reemerge, how's that gonna work? How, and how do you have sort of the steady deterrent factor without burning people out going forward? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The burnout factor is significant, right? These are National Guard troops that have been, you know, overused in many ways for the last 20 years since 9-11. But speaking of 9-11, today it was reported that the military found a, a guy, a, a service member who had been trying to collaborate with ISIS to include, you know, sharing information about targets to include the 9-11 memorial. Do you have any other uh, information how about how the military is expanding beyond the domestic threats? It seems like the threats are coming from all sides, but how do you see them as responding? And, you know, bottom line, do you think they're ready for this or are they still kind of head in the sand about how real the threat is and from how many places it's coming? I actually think in some ways they're a lot more prepared for the international threats because those have existed for years. You know, we, we saw ISIS sympathizers. We, we, we've seen, you know, the concern on the flip side about Americans joining the counter-ISIS movement and joining the YPG or whoever else. 
uh, you know, and they didn't consider that terrorism, but they were concerned about it. Um, I think the domestic one actually is a lot more difficult so far because they don't screen the same ways that they have for you know decades now uh, on on the on the foreign threat. Yeah, let me let me you 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 I think spend some time with uh, General Walker, who's been tasked with with commanding the National Guard response. I was struck by his comments. He basically said, "There's not an extremism problem. I'm not concerned about it." Uh, that 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 felt like uh, you know echoes of of the invasion of Iraq will be greeted as liberators to me. It, it just felt out of touch. Am I reading it wrong? What kind of a sense did you get from him? Because when I read the interviews, he seemed uh, dangerously overconfident to me. Uh, when I when I hear comments like that, I'm often wondering what are you saying and what are you thinking. Uh, so this this was a scenario where what I heard actually very much sounded like Pentagon talking points for years. Uh, and I think there's there's often an effort to sort of reassure civilians and you know make it sound like we got it. Um, but then I'm always wondering what's being said behind the scenes and how are they changing and you know do they view this as a as a you know onesie twosie kind of problem that they need to deal with uh, very deliberately? Um, you know how much are they thinking about adding additional layers? I would imagine one of the biggest problems you have if you're the DC National Guard commander right now is you went from having a few thousand under your command to 25,000 under your command for the week. You don't know all these folks. How could you? And you have been handed a mission that's pretty daunting to keep this very large perimeter safe. You need to rely on the folks you're sent. And yet at the same time, you're also now being told that you need to screen these people. I don't know that some missions are easily solvable. So... I think there's a, you know, sort of trying to deal with the worst case scenarios and hoping everything else works out well. Yeah, I think that's a good read, Dan. That, 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 the, the Pentagon talking points are, are, are often amplified in times like this. And, and, you know, I hope that there's a candor behind the scenes because, frankly, it, it stunned me. Like, I, 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 my immediate response is if, if, if he's that confident, he should be fired. Because anyone who's that confident, given the multitude of threats and the severity of the environment, and frankly, the knowledge of the National Guard, I mean, the National Guard uh, doesn't have, you know, the, the same high standards, and, and the, the unit's just not connected, right? Guys aren't in the unit, and got, gals aren't in the unit every single day. You don't have close tabs on them. They're gone sometimes for a month or months, and you don't know what they're up to. So it felt dangerously overconfident to me. Um, let me ask you, but while I've got you, you're, you've been covering Afghanistan often when no one else is. Uh, as inauguration happens this week, we've got troops in Afghanistan that probably feel forgotten. I've called it Forgotistan. For someone who has been tuned out on Afghanistan for the last year, what do you think is most important for them to know uh, during the week where we have a new commander-in-chief and a new secretary of defense who didn't get too many hard questions or pending secretary of defense who didn't seem to get too many hard questions uh, during his, his confirmation hearings about Afghanistan? I mean, there's the obvious point, which is that Trump brought it down to 2,500 uh, service members left in Afghanistan, seemingly devoid of a strategy that tied it to that. You know, he wanted to bring the numbers down, you know, commander in chief, you can make that call. But there didn't seem to be a connection to the ongoing negotiations with the Taliban. There's also no sense for whether or not those negotiations with the Taliban ultimately can work or will work. So I think you're going to see a reset to a degree. 
these negotiations are still going to be ongoing. I'd imagine both sides are going to have to feel each other out for, for what's still the same and what's now different with a new administration. Um, and then I, I think this is going to continue to kind of stay in the background and slowly plot out. Um, you know, on, on one hand, we've had no U.S. service member deaths in Afghanistan for a while, and that's a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we're still seeing these targeted assassinations of journalists, uh, of judges, uh, of, you know, any number of Afghan figures. Uh, you know, I haven't been in Kabul since, I guess, about February of last year, so I'm a bit dated firsthand, but, you know, we, we've all read the reports of sort of this, you know, creeping targeted violence and, and the kind of fears those create. You know, I think it's a, it's fair to wonder what this looks like. And, you know, the Taliban's pr been pretty firm that they expect zero service members. So so what does that look like? Do you do you have some sort of enduring counterterrorism mission? And if you do, is it actually based in Afghanistan? Or do we start kind of handling it more the way we're handling some other places like Somalia, where we've already pulled the troops out and, you know, we're running strikes and trying to do intelligence without actually having any boots on the ground, really? Mm -hmm. So despite what Trump promised, the war in Afghanistan is not over. Uh, all our troops are not home. Um, and and in, in my view, there's been a war on the Pentagon politically from Trump, especially in the last couple of months where he got rid of Esper, installed political actors. But there's also been, in, in my view, a political and public relations war against the media. Trump calls guys like you enemies of the people, right? And you had uh, Esper and others who seemed to put the clamp down on the Department of Defense's communication, regular press briefings, things like that. As we look forward, I hope there will be increased transparency. There's a new SecDef coming in. There's a new commander in chief. Um, what do you think is the legacy of the four years of Trump running the Pentagon as a guy who covered the Pentagon and walked the halls? You know, what are the takeaways and what are the legacies of, of the Trump Department of Defense? I mean, I think it was a constant scenario of being strained by the politics, like a lot of other parts of the government. Um, I actually look at folks like Secretary Mattis and Secretary Esper, uh, and I can understand some of the decisions they made. I don't necessarily like those decisions, uh, and I don't necessarily think that you know, they have all positive consequences. You know, when you reduce briefings, when you reduce how frequently you speak to the media, when you reduce how frequently you let your uh, subordinates also speak to the media. But I can understand it to a degree uh, only because everything got immediately echoed through the Trump lens. Looking forward, you know, hopefully there's some sort of reset. I think that's healthy um, for just open transparency. Uh, which is, you know, always going to be a concern of a reporter. Um, and, and then, you know, there are a lot of times, like, I feel like I was able to, in previous administrations, you can cover the operations and it's not always political. Sometimes it is, sometimes it needs to be, and you, you cover it as best you can, as fairly as you can. Um, but the politics refracted off of so many things that it didn't used to, it, it made it complicated every single day. As a national defense, Pentagon security expert. You've covered insurgencies. I think now we're facing a domestic insurgency. As we look ahead, Dan, for the average American who wants to be prepared, who wants to stay vigilant, who wants to look down the road, how bad do you think it's going to get? Um, and, and what do you think it's going to look like over the next couple of months in America? Man, I wish I had a good read on that. Uh, and I think one of the 
the successes as I have is I try not to be too predictive in what I think might happen and, and hopefully get surprised a little less frequently as a result. Um, I mean, I can see a world where this gets really difficult and, and really troubling. Uh, I can also see a world where January 6th is a, is a wake-up call. And while you're going to continue to see arrests and you're going to see you know, raids and rallies and things of that sort, that maybe there is some sort of reset uh, you know, and there is at least a more active thought process that goes into how the government uh, responds to QAnon, how the government responds to some of the militias. Um, you know, everybody's got a right to free speech. You know, we have a right to bear arms, but, but it's it's more the how you do these things that, uh, you know, I think is going to be an ongoing question. Well, I know you'll continue to ask them. I, I got to thank you for your vigilance, for your tremendous reporting uh, you know, the, the term patriot has gotten cannibalized a lot in the last couple of weeks, but I think you represent uh, the kind of patriotism that exists in so much of the media, especially the national defense veterans and security media. You've been a guardian on the front lines, uh, pushing for the truth for all of us. So, I, you know, I hope that the hardest times of reporting are behind us and that you have the transparency and accountability that we all need. But I'm just really grateful for your reporting. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the dispatches. We'll all be watching and really appreciate your work, man. Thanks. Head down, do the job. That's yes, the way sir. I look at it. Yes, sir. Stay vigilant, stay frosty. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Okay, it's a big week, people. Again, and always, keep breathing. Keep breathing. Take a big deep breath with me. Come on. Strap in. Now, the good news is that we'll have a new president this week, finally. The bad news is we've still got some long, hard, painful fights ahead. But at last, we've finally got a sane, tested, unifying leader with integrity as our commander-in-chief. And it's long overdue. But he can't do it alone. Let's get down, let's get down to business. Mama, please don't worry about me I'm about to let my heart speak My friends keep telling me to leave this So let's get down, let's get down to business Let's get down, let's get down to business Give you one more night. Republicans, Democrats, Independents, whatever you are The battle for the White House is won But the war for the soul of America rages on. The war against the domestic insurgency may just be getting started. The war against the virus may finally be at a turning point. But before we can win that war, we have to grind through the darkest winter of our lifetime. January and February and March of 2021 will be our battle of the bulge against the virus. We can and will prevail, but we'll take huge losses and it will require massive sacrifice, tremendous unity, and a focus on the task at hand. The election is over. The new president is here. And celebrate for a bit if you can. But remember, the war wages on, and it's not a time to spike the ball. It's time to get down to business. It's time for America to stop all the bullshit, shut down the spread of the stupid, along with the spread of the virus, Keep an eye on Trump 
as he moves to set up shop elsewhere and unite as best we can. It's time to push forward and get down to business. Wherever you are, whoever you are, please continue to increase the peace. Bring light whenever you can to contrast the heat. Look out for others and look for the helpers. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. The helpers are out there, and they're rising to the moment, especially now, all across this country. And my thanks to all the helpers that made this episode possible, especially our guest, Dan Lamoth. Follow him on Twitter. He's at Dan Lamoth. And read everything he writes for The Washington Post. He's a helper. And my thanks to all the helpers at Righteous Media, especially creative Chris Rosenthal, who stepped up tremendously in the last couple of weeks, Mighty Mercy Rich, and brilliant Bill Schultz, who's still on the mend, and my massive thanks to my wife and two boys. They'll be watching this historic inauguration with me this week alongside their grandparents, and we'll be soaking it in, and soaking in the fact that their grandparents both got the first shot of the vaccine last week, and they've had no side effects. So hang in there, people. The vaccine is coming. And my thanks to all the helpers that are out there making that possible. Thanks also to our fearless Patreon members, and especially our newest Patreon member, Anna Frula. Thanks to Anna and all the other helpers who are part of our Patreon community. You can join the community, too, if you look for Angry Americans on Patreon. Chip in if you can and help us keep these dispatches, Angry Americans, and everything we're doing at Righteous Media coming. we got a lot of big stuff coming in 2021, and your support makes it possible. I'll also give you a sneak preview on every episode and everything else we have cooking, and we'll do a live chat on Zoom coming up soon. And if you like this episode and you like the dispatches, please go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. You can separately follow the dispatches wherever you get Angry Americans, and be sure to subscribe for free and share. Visit us on social media and check out thedispatches.us. We've got video there now, and the site continues to evolve. You can, of course, always check out righteous.us and angryamericans.us. If you haven't heard them already, go back and check out the last two dispatches we did with Jason Dempsey on white nationalism inside the military and with Malcolm Nance, who, along with me, predicted this domestic insurgency. And he shares how he thinks it will unfold in the weeks to come. All our dispatches are getting tremendous traction, and thanks for continuing to spread them. And here at Righteous Media, we'll continue to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Angry Americans is evolving, but you can still look for a new episode later this week, post-inauguration, hopefully Thursday, definitely by Friday. I'm going to continue to keep the content coming. Please keep sharing the feedback, and please keep sharing what we're doing here. It's still okay to be angry, especially now. But being angry is not enough anymore. Dreams we had don't ever fall away. We can't leave them if we stay the same. And I can't do this for We need so much more from each other and from ourselves. And know you're not alone. We're all paying attention. And we're all in this together. And we all need to stay focused, especially right now, and get down to business. So let's get down, let's get down to business. Let's get down, let's get down to business. A new chapter starts this week in America, but our story is still unfolding. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening.
Stay vigilant, America.